This is Cultivating Place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. This week, as we tend toward the winter solstice, we continue our exploration of garden and seasonally-based winter cheer here in the Northern Hemisphere. Hort and Pot is the botanically-driven design work and vision of Todd Carr and Carter Harrington. These two strive to embrace the seasons of their home place in the Catskill Mountains. Their vision is in many ways an effort to reimagine their own relationship to the wider natural world around them and an encouragement to us to do the same. Todd and Carter are gardeners, designers, creators, and educators, whose creations capture their own love of place and of seasonal, garden-based ritual, which they hope will awaken an ever greater and more sublime meaning when we bring the outdoors in or take ourselves out. They join me today from their ever-evolving home and garden in the Catskills. Welcome, Todd and Carter. Hi, Jennifer. So I would love to start by having the two of you uh, describe your personal relationship and professional relationship with plants right now at this moment in your life in December of 2020. And why don't I start with you, Todd? Right now, I'm just making tons of wreaths. It's the season. We've been uh, foraging and gathering material for basically the month of November. And um, I've just been producing lots of wreaths and adornments. And we used to go drive around and then we'd go to people's farms up here that um, they'd have a lot of land and they'd let us, you know, go to their properties and cut branches of pine and uh, grapevine. But um, more recently, we bought some property and Carter's been going out there and getting me um, white pine and eastern red cedar and um, lots of other different things. And we've been bringing them back to the homestead and I've been wreathing away <laughs> for the last couple of weeks. I guess I've been making wreaths since I was a kid. So it's it, it's come natural and it's I really love doing it. Um, when I get into the zone, you know, I feel like I can make magic happen with these branches and I love all the you know, the interesting things that they offer as far as shape and texture and putting them together and creating a piece that is completely unique. Even though that they're evergreens and they're not going to last forever, I think that a couple months of something wild and composed, I hope it makes people happy. Yeah. Now, you say the word wreath, and people have perhaps a very uh, specific image in their mind of what what that looks like. Yes. Can you describe what one thing you might have made today that falls under that heading of wreath? Because I have followed you for a long time, and most of what you create is just pure, pure art Aww. out of these living things. And you do it throughout the seasons, but your winter holiday reads are just so, they are these wild pieces. And so describe one in, in both what is in it, what makes it up, and maybe the form that it takes, because it's not that kind of constipated, tight circle that you see at the grocery store for sale right now. No, exactly. Yeah. I mean, that's how I learned how to make reads, um, was on a, you know, a wire, 
um, frame and mm-hmm. completely symmetrical and in tight bunches. And I still like to go back to that sometimes. And mm-hmm. I learned, you know, that, that technique I learned and, uh, still incorporate that. But the pieces that I make, um, I think every component and every element of that piece directly influences each other. So it starts with, you know, the base, the frame, which is forged grapevine, which is wild. And we take it down from the treetops, literally pull it down. And we only do that this time of year. And usually they're kind of taking over a pine tree or, or they might be rambling over some sumac or other shrubs and we'll pull them and then weave them. And in a, in a circular shape, but I try to, depending on, on how it moves, the, with the grapevine, it, once it's starting to be woven, then it um, kind of takes on its own shape. Mm-hmm. And that could be either really tight and composed, just wrapping it around in circles and circles and weaving it into each other, mm-hmm. or it can be loose and wild. So we'll make all the frames and then I'll, depending on my mood, I might want to do a smaller wreath or a larger wreath and I'll, I'll pick a frame and then it comes to the evergreen material. So these pieces too, the branches, they will have a natural movement just the way that they're growing. So um, a white pine branch might be reaching out in a certain direction and I'll use those as my directionals almost. So is this wreath going to move to the left or to the right? And I think that's really important with them is that they do have movement. I want them to have movement or like a wind is whipping them up or something of the sort. Yeah. And then depending on what other materials I have right now, I'm incorporating a lot of milkweed pods that happen to be on the property, grasses from the garden and it changes. So if we're foraging for winterberry, I'll do a whole series of wreaths with winterberry in it using all different kinds of pine cones and Mm. things of that sort. Yeah. And Jennifer, I'm not the wreath creator, but I'm observing Todd working. And it sounds like in what I observe is a huge process of what he's doing is listening. He's listening to the plants and the material that's, that's coming. And really this listening is um, a product of the entire year. It could depend on, what was growing this year what was what was really blooming what took off and i've noticed just from observing that certain years certain materials we use are abundant whereas perhaps this year for instance the winterberry wasn't super uh it wasn't lush that we had a little bit of a drought Mm -hmm. in the summer so maybe there wasn't so much red this year and so it it really comes back to like listening to what was growing and then listening even in the minutia of like when Todd's saying what branches, what wreath forms are really speaking, it, it seems to really drive the direction of what he's doing. I try to get him to articulate it sometimes and I know he's just creating, but that's just one of the observations I've made. Yeah. And I, I love that observation, Carter, because when I look at the images, I definitely see this responsiveness to uh, shape certainly, but also to the seasonality that you just mentioned. So, before we get deep into the ethos of hort and pot, and and what you're doing and why you're doing it the way you're doing it there, let's go to you, Carter. Tell us your relationship with 
with plants and this kind of beauty right now, both personally and professionally? Well, I grew up in Virginia, and so I was surrounded by the history of gardens, Mm. but not necessarily living gardens. The aesthetics of Virginia were quite traditional. However, I remember next door to me was a what I called a secret garden. It was it had been designed back in the 20s or 30s and growing up it was this it was it was overgrown um, until when I almost left home to move uh, to New York State a couple had bought the house and started uncovering the old pools and the terrace gardens and um, I even remember Hmm. sneaking through that and then on the street I grew up and there was uh it was kind of a street known for probably in in its past, its its garden. It, there was an affair, a love affair with gardens. But my friend and I, my neighbor, would sneak through the gardens, and I remember seeing the overgrown qualities, the old statues, um, an abundance of boxwoods. And so I was always curious by the story, and even that book, The Secret Garden. And then that interest kind of got subdued for a while as I went into my 20s and I, you know, moved to the city and and forgot about plants for a while. Uh, And then I eventually, my interest developed again and I worked for a gardener and we started doing some roof gardening and I started realizing I needed green Mm. back in my life. It was Mm -hmm. too much concrete. Uh, And that's where my interest grew again and I was always looking for the green, the green in the cracks, so to speak. And then meeting with Todd, who was the first garden person I had <laughs> developed a close connection with. And I think that it just reawakened and being able to do what we do together kind of unleashed something that I think I, I shelved for quite a while. Yeah. Yeah. So Let's go back a little bit in terms of hort and pot, and uh, you describe it online as an ever-evolving, botanically-driven destination shop in upstate New York. Give us a little bit of the history of what paths in life, Carter, you just got us started on this, um, in, in this direction, but maybe take it from there, Todd, with what inspired you to take your plant love to the next level, create a profession, and then create this business that's very land and season based together. Well, Horror and Pot came out of the idea of, it's short for horticulture and pottery. And I guess when I was in my, when I was young, probably in my teenagers, teenager years, I worked at a farm stand and I started getting really into plants then. And at the same time, I was working at a ceramic studio and I was making ceramics and pottery. And over the course of the course of my 20s, I did a lot of pop-ups and kind of like craft fairs and selling my pots and um, selling plants in my pots. And the idea of Horton Pot was kind of trying to bring all my, I guess, talents and everything I wanted to create under one umbrella because I always felt a little like, am I a garden designer? Am I an artist? Am I, you know, and I needed, 
I guess, kind of an identity and business to kind of sum that all up. And Horton Pot was an idea, and I had business cards made, but no shop front. It was just basically just an idea, and I'd, I'd you know, do a few shows here and there. How long was that ago that you, you got that far? Oh, God, I'm like 40. <laughs> I know, like 20 years ago, probably, yeah. <laughs> I know, it feels, like, yeah, it feels like yesterday. Uh-huh. <laughs> I don't so feel that old. <laughs> <laughs> Keep describing this journey for us. So I always kept this idea of Horton Pot and I, you know, I had other jobs and um, I was a garden designer for 10 years and that was in Northern New Jersey. And uh, I loved that. I really loved designing gardens. Over that course of that time though, I did get into more, you know, I do container designs and then I started doing holiday decor and doing wreaths and it just, everything I really wanted to do for myself, I kind of, I got to express through this company that I worked for. And um, that lasted for about 10 years. And then um, at the same time, I was with my ex and we were living upstate. And um, I had a little pottery shop there. Um, It was called the Cornwallville Pottery. So I was also doing gardens and still tinkering around with ceramics at the time. And then when that didn't work out, I moved to Maine. And I moved to Maine as kind of start anew up in Kennebunkport. And uh, I lived there for two years. And that's when I first did the Horton Pot storefront. And the winters were really too long there. <laughs> and I missed my family. And uh, it was beautiful while, uh, while I was there. And I'm glad I had that experience. I came back home. And, you know, I wasn't ready to open up a shop. I, I can tell you that. And I was thinking about getting back into design work. And then I got an email. I guess it was a headhunter from Martha Stewart Living. And they asked me if I wanted to be a senior garden editor there. And I said, yes, I was looking for something. And it was a great opportunity. And I was only there for a year because she did sell the brand and the company. And at that point, Carter and I were together. He lost his job. And I said, hey, I know some friends up in upstate New York. Why don't we try to get out of the city since we don't have work right now? And why don't we spend the summer up in the Catskills? And he was all about the idea. So we came up and rented a little cottage. And uh, that's how Horton Pot kind of started to be reborn in a new idea with him and together and working to make some magic together. Mm -hmm. I'm Jennifer Jewell, and this is Cultivating Place. We're speaking today with Todd Carr and Carter Harrington of Hort and Pot, botanically driven design in upstate New York. We'll be right back for more of their winter holiday magic making. Stay with us. Hey, it's Jennifer. One of the things I love about the work of Hort and Pot is how the design, as Carter articulates it early in the conversation, is in many ways about listening and hearing, about looking and seeing what is going on in the world around them throughout the year in order to make the most responsive designs in that time in their place. I like this idea of us as gardeners all being in truer conversation with the larger land and lives of our places. Conversely, I was really sickened 
and disheartened recently when John shared with me the news that in the state of California, four highly pressured and declining bumblebee species were recently excluded from protections under the Endangered Species Act. As reported by Western Farm Press, the Superior Court in Sacramento ruled that the California Endangered Species Act does not cover insects, and that bees, as invertebrates, cannot be included under the same classification as fellow invertebrates fish, which are covered by the act. The Almond Alliance of California and seven other industrial agricultural groups sued the California Fish and Game Commission in order to ensure that the bumblebees were not granted protections. The case followed a 2018 petition from the Xerces Society for Invertebrate Conservation, Defenders of Wildlife, and the Center for Food Safety to add the four bumblebee species, the crotches, the franklins, the suckly cuckoo, and the western bumblebee. The bees would have been the first insects granted protections. In response to the industry win, the Almond Alliance said, quote, The California almond industry recognizes that pollinators are integral to many natural habitats and are crucial for the production success of our industry, but that they were pleased with the ruling, and they reiterated that the California almond industry continues to be committed to protecting the health and well-being of bees. While that sounds great, the fact is that the Almond Alliance of California and these seven other agricultural groups opposed the protection of these bumblebees because they feared that pesticide restrictions, grazing rules, and other habitat protections could then be imposed. I guess I'm missing which natural habitat insects aren't crucial for and how maintaining our economic structure dependent on pesticide use, on not altering or advocating for better grazing management, and not protecting and caring for all of our natural habitats, could ever equal being committed to protecting the health and well-being of bees, even honeybees, and certainly not bumblebees. In more bad news, the winter count for the western monarch butterflies are even more dire this winter than previous lows. And I marry these two thoughts, that of the adaptive and responsive creativity of Todd and Carter, and that of the short-sighted, non-responsive, and non-adaptive to our exact time and place on this beloved planet of our larger agricultural industries and economies, because I think this is one of those disconnects that gardeners can weigh in on. This is one of those breaches into which gardeners can enter with all the conviction and love that they exchange with their gardens and places every day, every season. That we, as gardeners, can advocate and role model and vote with our own gardens and gardening and voices and choices and dollars for the economies of our places to be built on listening to and heeding the nature of our places. All habitats, all habitats are dependent on insects, and all of our insects need us. 
and we desperately need them. How many chemically dependent almonds are four entire species of bumblebees worth to you? For more information on this and how to get involved and learn more, head to thezerseysociety.org. Together, we can and will grow better. We're back now to our conversation with Hort and Pot, a botanically driven design studio based on the beauty and seasonality of the Catskill Mountains in upstate New York. In this particular season, the very personal creations and creativities of gardeners Todd and Carter will remind you of the great joy of handcrafting seasonal plant-based delights to help usher us our families, our homes, our communities, into the sacred, needed, healing, dark, and dreamy dormancy and rest of winter. When we left off, Todd had shared with us how the two of them took a big leap of faith, moving out of New York City and the early origins of this iteration of Horton Pot. As we come back, I ask Carter how it happened that a summer break turned into a life choice from his perspective. I can tell you exactly how. Because, uh. because the price was right. Our friend, uh, the, the, the woman who was renting us the cottage, who's become basically our fairy godmother. She used to be a taxi driver. used to drive a cab in the city back in the 80s. And Love it. We just clicked. Oh, let me preface this. Uh, it was a it was a month we rented the cottage in July, and then it was then it became August. And of course, being in New York City in August is awful. Who is in the city in New York? I mean, it's it's hot and humid. We happened to have a creek in the backyard in which we basically spent a month building a stone labyrinth. <laughs> um, you know, think Andy Gold's worthy, but on our own our our own little way and. Just working through some ideas, releasing steam, and realizing, wow, what a beautiful place. Uh, so what? one day she goes, look, follow me. There's a house for sale. I think you might be interested. It's not really in the market. I don't really know what the story is. It's a foreclosure. And she walked us down this dead-end road. And we saw the house, and I was floored by you know, how affordable it was. It was a fixer upper, but it's a historic farmhouse, small, intimate, and very cute. And we said, you know what, we could go back to the city now and look for new jobs and look for new apartments and start the cycle all over again. It had been almost nine or 10 years we'd been there. Or we could buy this house and take a risk and jump off the cliff and just do it. And we did. And, um, it kind of was meant to be in this weird way. It's almost like you couldn't plan this. We'd actually be fools to try to plan something like this. And so we we bought the house, we closed, and we got the key. And then we were kind of like, oh, my goodness, what are we going to do now? So Yeah, it was like we, we came up. <laughs> it was almost um, we found the house and then figured out what we were going to do afterwards. Yeah. Right. And, and Todd was always making arrangements. That's just like part of his thing. He does flower arrangements. He gathers things. And I remember that that winter was it was a little it was a little challenging. It was rough because the summer is one thing. The winters upstate are another. And I think that 
the necessity of how do we channel our energies together. Um, and the shop wasn't even born until the spring. I think the idea kind of gestated over the, the winter. And this, the woman that we were mentioning, there was a, she had a carriage barn uh, built in 1869. Yes. And it had been empty and just full of, you know, who knows what. And in the spring, we talked to her and we said, look, we're interested in, in fixing up this space because we'd like to do a shop. What do you think? And she said, I love the idea. And that's when it was born. And it, it really just, it started a lot with um, Todd's collection of vintage and and little plants we had grown and it, it just it was almost like a little pop-up and yeah. and we went through that year and just felt it out and it was it was kind of a fun thing it got real interesting that next winter the win the before the the holiday season of 2017 is when the, the idea really clicked todd started with one wreath and shared it through social media and got a really wonderful response. And at that point I had started, I'd set myself up a little, you know, a little workshop with some, some tools. And we started, and, and Todd would ask me, can you, can, can you build a swing? Can you make these vases for me or a little tray to hold these bud vases? And then we realized, okay, this is it. This is where we're going to draw on the cat skills. We're going to draw on our love for botanical, my background in fabrication and, and that's when it really started to click. I love this story so much. How did you acquaint yourself with the land, which has clearly developed into this responsiveness and knowledge of when things are ready and what things you can use well and, and maybe what things you shouldn't use because there aren't enough of them or whatever that might be? How did you like make that friendship with this ecosystem and the land you are engaged with? I, first of all, loved how Todd opened my eyes to it because I will never drive down a country road without being like, look at that grapevine. Or I like know. now it's like this, it's this thing. And I think that was almost imparted to him by his mother because she's like, look at the Winterberry, you know, and <laughs> it's, it's so, it's so charming and, and cute. And look, I, my eyes were open to this world because it had almost taken that time to get through the spring to really look around and to, I don't know, it's almost like slowing down in a way that I didn't even realize how, how it was a different tempo uh, we were used to. But it was also a large part of it, just exploring. And we would, um, I remember the first, uh, one of the first foraging things, adventures, we just we would literally just drive up the mountain road and look for a really kind of like back road. I'm like, let's put the four wheel drive on and see what's, you know, not a private road, but I mean, these are old country roads and we would just go and be like, Oh, look. And we've discovered these beautiful worlds. I mean, from a business perspective, it was completely impractical, but for the creative process and, and the discovery of uh, looking and learning and, I personally have learned so much of what to pay attention to now. And it was just, it's, it's taken a few years, but I'm like, Oh, the sumacs aren't doing good this year or look at the winterberry this year. And I think it's like feeling the rhythms and, and there's a lot 
that we've observed just through the little gardens we have on our property. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Talk about that sort of balance between what is cultivated and what is what is wild foraged. Right now, we we have the red house, which is still in Oak Hill. Um, so we have a little, like I said, it's a two-story red house, and uh, I planted some gardens out front. So lots of perennial grasses, um, willow, and I use that material a lot in the, in the reeds right now. And the new property that we have, which is that is twenty acres, and what's really exciting about that property is it's got a lot of different. Um, diverse landscape it's got a pond and wet loving plants it's got an open meadow it's got a a dense white pine uh woods it's got um lots of areas to get material from and it's been a big relief this year because the material is really accessible and right outside our doorstep and before that, it'd be a little, a little be like the past years, we'd be driving around looking for stuff. And we also started planting things and we we're planning on planting things in the future there too. Um, we go to my family's farm in Pennsylvania and we get a lot of the, some of the base greens there and the more architectural ones we planted maybe over 10 years ago, my parents and I planted a bunch of blue spruce to grow as Christmas trees, but we don't have the heart to cut them down. So now every year I... <laughs> Now every year I come and I cut big branches off the lower branches and use them. And um, mm-hmm. there's some big Norway spruce on the property and there's some other pines that will gather material there. And we kind of piece it together and then yeah. some, you know, but this new property is really, I really want to start planting my own winterberry and I want to, you know, plant more willow and plant some different, more unique evergreens and, different material that we can go out our doorstep and um, enjoy visually and use and be part of the business. Yeah. Carter. Where the shop was and where our current house is, I mean, it sits on less than an acre, right? Todd in the summer grows beautiful flowers and the grasses, all of these, a lot of these elements come into play, but there's, they're not necessarily the, 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 the true wilderness, which is part of the ex- exploration of the cat skills. Now that we're moving on to a bigger um, piece of property, we have the opportunity to cultivate v- the varieties that we really want to use. And that's all in conjunction with a, the creative practice of creating the wreaths and the arrangements has grown. And so it's there's a point where how much can you forage if you're turning your creative passion into a business? Yeah. yeah. And that's a that's a dynamic like scaling and and balance that I think all all creative horticultural um hearts and, and minds have to just they have to test it every season. Yeah. Then you get into, well, do we want an assembly line or no, we don't want to uh, go there. But you know, that is, I think, a constant temperature taking for, for businesses of your kind. And yet what is so fabulous about what you do is that it feels very personal. And um, not only, I, I think, do you curate it that way, but it actually is from what I'm I'm hearing in your voices. Mm-hmm. And I love that um, because I experience it myself. I think all gardeners probably do this time of year where you're like, 
like, and then I need to plant more of that so oh, I have yes. it. And then I need to plant more of that so I have yes. it for Christmas. And throughout the year, right? You're always yeah, exactly. Yeah, and you start, you know, collecting. I start collecting pretty early. You know, like oh, those acorns might be fun. Oh those yes, acorn definitely. Caps, right? Yeah, definitely. Pine cones on the side of the road when we're stopping. <laughs> we always have bags and bungee cords and right. yeah. clippers in the car. It's just the way to. Or do. and it's just it's so interesting how it's just become part of life. So like when we'll go to Virginia to see, we'll actually be going um, after Christmas. And there's, oh, I love magnolia trees, right? And they don't really grow around here. Yeah, they're and, not zone hardy. And they're not zone hardy here. And I love them. And uh, where my grandmother's, where my grandmother lives, lived, there's a wonderful magnolia tree around her, right in front of her house. And we'll just go and we'll just grab all the pods off the ground and we'll just be like, oh, wonderful. And now I, I almost can make a story with these things. Like, remember when we found all those like crazy like swamp acorns? Like, yeah, something. Yeah, yeah. yeah we'll find yeah. we'll find things like the one time we there was a like a gum tree and the gums weren't fully developed. They were still tight balls. I don't know why they were shedding, but they were on the ground and they kind of stayed like that. And sometimes you'll, you'll be at the right spot and you have a little time and we'll just fill up our little bags and buckets because I might not have even a purpose for them right then or even, but just to have them. And that's kind of how my studio set up. It's like, everything is kind of, it's got its it's in its basket or it's in its bowl and sometimes I use them and sometimes I'm like, oh I'll save this for next year. So I guess it is personal then, yeah. you know. I'm Jennifer Jewell and this is Cultivating Place. We're joined today by Todd Carr and Carter Harrington of Hort and Pot, botanically driven design in upstate New York. We'll be right back for more of their winter welcoming wreath magic making. Stay with us. Okay, so thinking out loud this week. I know. I really, really do. How fatigued and stressed and checked out we can become in the face of so much bad news across the board. We, as a species, and some of us more than others, have a lot of work to do to improve our species' contributions to this evolutionary and planetary dance. But while I tell you about this news on the bumblebees and the monarchs, let me also remind you of how important even small steps are. Like Teresa Sabankaya's fortitude posy of last week, of Todd Carr's wild and composed creations of this week to greet the coming winter. Like the story of every woman in my book, The Earth in Her Hands, and every interview I host here on Cultivating Place. Just as every bumblebee matters, so too every one of our caringly cultivated gardens makes a difference. Every one of our gardens that rejects chemicals, that nurtures listening humans, and healthy insects and birds and snakes and frogs and flowers and fruit. Every one of our gardens that responds and adapts to changing seasons and circumstances and needs makes a difference. We gardeners can be powerful, intersectional agents and spaces of life-giving change for the better. 
for our own individual growth and well-being, for our families, for our communities, and our economies of humans and all other beings, from bumblebees to monarchs to the very soil, water, and air. As we head into this solstice season and the restorative dark rest of this winter of 2020, dream on this. Dream and gestate on this power we hold. What wild and composed magic might result? The winter reminds us, and our winter gardens remind us, that rest and dreams are required for all healthy growth. We're back now speaking with Todd and Carter of Hort and Pot, a botanically driven design studio inspired by the beauty and seasonality of the Catskill Mountains and ecosystems of upstate New York. One of the aspects of both their life journey and their professional evolution is how adaptive and responsive it is. As they enter this newest phase in relationship with a new-to-them piece of land, its forests, its wetlands, its meadows of milkweed that they dance through to disperse most of the seeds before they harvest the pods, they are leaning into this shifting time. They are taking their time to consider what the physical shop of Hort and Pot should and will look like in the new year. As we come back, they share more about this process with us. This fall is when we we decided that we were going to close the shop after Columbus Day. Um, We've been looking for this for a property for over a year. And we love the, the old barn in Oak Hill, and we had a great time there. It was just... It was, t- it was, we called it what, our cocoon, right? It was our cocoon. It was yeah. our cocoon. Mm-hmm. It was small and we just wanted to expand and do lots of different things and didn't have heat <laughs> or running water. So this winter, last winter, I said to myself, I was like, I don't want to do another, you know, holiday in there. It, it was very cold last year and we got a lot of snow. Do you remember that Carter? We had like a foot of snow before Thanksgiving. Um, and this year, I wanted to pack up the shop before um, the snows came. So we, we closed up and we moved everything over to the new property. Now, the new property has a big house on the road. And behind the house was an old boarding house. So the boarding house is what we're converting into the new shop and studios for Horton Pot. We've been working on it for since March, different aspects of it. But it needed a it's, it's complete renovation, new roof. Um, we put new windows in it and we're yeah so all of this really came about because like Todd was saying we really loved that carriage bar and the character that it had was just I mean really timeless Um, but this goes back to the same kind of topic of forage or grow and, and that temperature taking and okay so now we're we're also going this business and what was serving us then it's like well we actually need to implement some more infrastructure and we need to gear this a little bit more to our needs which we're growing and expanding and i remember specifically writing down and in quotes we're looking for 
probably a historic property because we love the character of old things with some acreage and some uh, outbuildings, uh, probably fixer uppers that we can grow our business, have more creative workspace and cultivate more plants to both use in projects and to just purely celebrate for, for gardening. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it was about the idea and I always use this metaphor. We were like a plant in a pot that needed to kind of be repotted. We had kind of hit the edge in terms of our, our capacity to grow there. And so like you would any, I guess, plant when it, you it's root bound. And that was just the feeling that we kept thinking mm-hmm. about. And it's not necessarily, it wasn't a negative thing. It was just like, we need to grow. grow. I love all this because I think that listeners want to hear how people have to and then do make practical decisions, even for these romantic and personally mission-driven businesses, right? These are decisions everyone has to look at and make, and that's important to hear. I think, as I'm watching the time, what I would love to do is have you describe a little bit more about your... um, winter holiday decorating and crafting. Uh, Maybe talk about the highlights of this year's wreaths and decorations, maybe at home and for Horton and Pot, and how you ship them, how how long, you know, how they hold, how people care for them. Um, You have just so many, when I look uh, on your various uh, locations, the website and Instagram and um, there are so many that are really beautiful, but maybe describe the making really technically as well as the 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 pro- like for instance, you mentioned all of the um, milkweed pods that you're using, and I think you and I had a little bit of a, a back and forth about the the milkweed pods. Where do you get them? How do you work with them? How do you incorporate them into a, a design and then take us from there? Yeah, well, with the milkweed, I love milkweed. Um, so it's not always easy to find, um, but we just so happen to be lucky that at the new property, there happens to be this large colony of it out in this like back meadow area. So there's tons of it. And I guess, what was it? Probably like October. It's when they started to, you know, started to release the seeds. So we just let them run their course with that. Um, we let them kind of, you know, seed everywhere. And then we start picking them, try to get it before the rains come um, because then they start getting, they can get soggy and start breaking apart. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And if there's any seeds, we kind of like run through the fields and kind of spread the seeds because we want more milkweed. Um, it's beneficial for so many insects and, you know, I hope that colony and, with the pods, they're very structural. So I use them almost to emphasize the movement in the wreaths. So I'll be, you know, I, I put my um, base branches down, with whatever natural curves that are happening with those branches. And I will use the milkweed, wire them on. So with, the other thing with my wreaths is that they're all, everything is wired. Um, there's very few exceptions that I do use a little bit of glue, but, um, even the pine cones, everything is wired on and wired into one form. Mm -hmm. Um, so they're very thick. They're very heavy, I'd say. 
beefy reeds. Yeah, they're they're they're, they're like masculine reeds. They're very well yeah. constructed. Yeah, they're robust. They're they're hardy. They're very yeah. tight. Yeah. Um, and that's the style I like, you know, and I appreciate other people's styles too. There's very um, delicate and wispy dried reeds too, which are really beautiful. Or some people like to use ribbon, which I do too. Um, so they're all they're all wired, and they you you is it exclusively on a grapevine base that you have created as well? Most of the pictures I've seen are on the the grapevine. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And you're able yep. to wild forage that all uh, all that you need of the the grapevine. Yeah, and there's a lot yeah. of that. So that there's never Oh, it's everywhere. In fact, it was a win-win because um before we got most of it, like we would have friends that we met like, look, this grapevine's attacking our tree. Do you want to come get it? And it's a win-win because it's like we're saving their tree and then we're getting material to use. Mm-hmm. And uh it's I love I love win-win. Yes. But sometimes if we do see grapevine and it's on already a dead tree, I'll just cut it back and let it regrow mm-hmm. and regrow where it was so I have some more next year as well. Right. And do you soak it before you make it into the form or you just work with it nope, sort of just fresh? fresh. Yep. Yeah. And then, you know, I've seen you I, – I love that you wire all the pine cones. Are your hands pretty um, chapped and beat up right now by this time in the season, Todd? <laughs> no, they're, <laughs> no, they're pretty good. I mean, they're, I, lo- I love the sap on my hands. I love yeah. it. I love the smell of it. Um, no, but, it, yeah, twisting lots of pine yeah. cones. My mother used to pay my sisters and me uh, pennies on the pine cone to collect ponderosa cones and then wire them. Or she'd give you a penny for yeah, a pine cone? Yeah, pretty much. And then you get, um, you'd get wire them into a bundles of twos and threes and ones. And and by yes. by Christmas, my hands were so beat up because I, I couldn't do it uh, and wear gloves. And it was uh, it's a it's a very happy memory, actually. Yeah, you can't wear no. gloves. I, I don't like wearing no. gloves when I'm creating wreaths you know they always get caught so you just have to kind of suffer even through the blue spruce and the more yeah. you know, <laughs> dangerous bits of right <laughs> and so and i'm also seeing you know you you are pulling in some of these like really great old traditions of dried citrus and pomanders and feathers and how do you do you collect those and start preparing things like dried citrus um the both of you how how soon before the holiday season do you start getting these kinds of supplies ready well carter does all the dried citrus so and when we think about ornaments um and we would always love to we want to keep adding more ideas but i like the citrus when i'm not exactly sure when it's only in season by imagine some obviously that's not local but when it starts coming in in the fall because it's probably growing in like the warmer climates oh citrus yeah Yeah. it's more of a winter crop yeah it's coming in here in california right now my meyer lemons and the mandarins are out and the the navels will be a little later in the season yeah Mm -hmm. yeah so it's kind of about timing it then and even deeper this winter i'll mean if i'm snowed in i'll just make sure to get some and i sit there and listen to a podcast like yours while I slice tons of citrus. citrus. And I, my mother <laughs> gave me an Excalibur dehydrator two Christmases ago, and I got it because I wanted nice. to dry all my tomatoes, which is a funny right. thing growing up here because they all happen to pop 
like in September and then you've got hundreds of them. You've been waiting all summer. And then you're like, what yeah. do you do with all these? I'm not a canner. <laughs> so I started dehydrating tomatoes, which are delicious. And so we do that. Um, and then when, for instance, we do these milkweed seed ornaments and when we're starting to harvest for uh, just collecting materials for reeds, I will sit there and take all the seeds out um, and put them in bags. And then I take tweezers and put those in glass spheres, which we love because they kind of look like snow. Um, so, yeah, that all starts kind of. In yeah. Fall. So Carter, you know, Carter does all, he does the ornamentation. So he does the citrus and the ornaments and he does all the shipping, which is, my reeds are kind of sometimes they're a little crazy and wild, but he just packs them. I can't even tell you how delicately and how he does it. He's come up with his own way of shipping these reeds, well done. which they, some of them don't even look like they should be shippable. No. <laughs> but you get them in a box, and yeah. people always send us sweet messages how they got their wreath and how it's perfect and. That's nice. Yeah, yeah how was, they ship. I was very nervous about the first wreath we ever shipped because it was like, is this possible? And then I just really took my time and I and I use recycled newsprint and I just like roll it. Sometimes I just roll into little tubes and pop those between like different materials. Like if there's a winterberry bundle over a thistle, then I'll just put little pieces of paper between that. And I just mm -hmm. sit there and kind of feel it out. It's almost second nature at this point, but it was a challenge. I love it. Well, they are they are really beautiful. Do either of you have a favorite one this year? Is there a particular um, wreath that has been crafted that you've said, oh, that's it. That's my favorite this year. I always love that kind of what I think is traditional with the winterberry, the birch bark. Um, that that is, to me screams the holidays. I, um, I have yeah. to say, I like, I'm looking now at our, our own website and I love the Magnolia one. Does that make you think of home? Yes. And I loved this crazy one he did. That was, there was no, nothing more than just lots and lots of greens and lots and lots of pine cones and a really kind of insane grapevine form. Um, yeah. Okay. Which one is that? Show Tell me, I'm looking at That's the website. I'm looking at I reeds. Like number ten. Okay, wait, I'm going to number. So back 10. in the day when we first started selling reeds, Carter used to name used all to name our reeds. Like Everyone had its own <laughs> like name. Say, I'd be like Winterberry Wisp, or like you know, and then it just it was, funny. And I was like, I, was I can't like, we don't name this. Oh, that's awesome. Time for that. But, <laughs> you know, or like Citrus like, Sway, or like yeah, someone caught all these really funny ones. So. Oh, that's great. So. As we're coming to the end of this conversation, I look at everything that you do and I read this wonderful sentence from your website, which I think is summarizing the, the ethos you are trying to live into. And that is the creation and curation of botanical driven design that reimagines the relationships between people and nature. And I would love to end by having each of you describe what that means to you and why is that important, this reimagining of these relationships between people and nature? Why, why, and, and what does that look like to you? What does that mean? Let's start with you, Carter. Well, I think that that ethos 
came actually originally, you know, for me, um, and I'm not, I can't speak for God here, but it almost came from, like I had mentioned living in the city and stuff and kind of losing sight of, of plants and stuff. And, and I, I really realized that there was a lot of value to, I mean, and this is nothing new, but just bringing nature back in and to our lives and, and so, back inside and, and kind of feeling like it's okay to bring branches and plants inside. It's mm -hmm. okay to surround yourself with nature because it really is this timeless thing that defies styles. I, I went to art school, so I learned all about different styles and aesthetics. And it almost seemed very like, uh, like easy to pigeonhole these things. And when I realized like nature is like abundant and bountiful and really doesn't subscribe to any preconceived aesthetics or ideas, that's when I, and, and then of course, like learning from Todd and realizing, wow, he's got this art to take natural natural materials and, and form these beautiful things it's just like something that I couldn't ever have learned in school or and I never really met people who did that um and it kind of opened my eyes to how we can really participate in nature and kind of let it it speak to us in its own kind of way mm -hmm. if that makes any sense um, yeah so that's that's nice. my that's my take on it and just really learning how to appreciate um, being surrounded and, and of course that ties into our other big process just being in tune with the seasons and really like stopping to pay attention mm -hmm. to what's going on and she's always there so yeah and you know bringing people closer to nature it's very it's it's so important to me when I get those messages um from people that said you inspired me to go out and pick some greens and make garland for my banister or i thought wow. of you today when i was out driving and i found this or it, it, i think for me that is the the reason really why i love doing this is hearing people's memories of you know making ornaments with their people send me these amazing stories of um that's great lots of memories and nostalgia and things that really make this all worth it for me. I love hearing that. And I love bringing people closer to nature and hearing their response and making them happy, you know, and, you know, they don't have to, you know, when people do buy a wreath, that's great. But I think it's more important when it inspires them to go out and do something on their own and create something with, you know, the, the bounty that is, you know, in nature and outdoors. Absolutely. And could I add one thing onto that, Todd? Yeah. I, we also jointly feel that we are living in a very technology, like this is just something that can be a very technology oriented society. And, and I think there's so many great things about the technology available to us, but I think there's a little bit of a, a, a side to that, that could, I don't know. I, I hope that we can also champion nature because it's important to stay in touch with that. And I think there's a real risk at, of, of, you know, a, people kind of losing touch of that and getting sucked into the, the screens and, and all, all yep. of the electronic stuff, which is fantastic, but it's 
it's not really real either. So, and I think that's what's right. happening right now. There is this movement um, of people really wanting to connect with nature in any way that they can. You know, even if it's even like if they're in a city and keeping their little window box or yeah. anything of that sort, mm-hmm. just trying to get back down to it. And which among you is the photographer and stylist for, for Hort and That's Hot? That's <laughs> Yeah. It's beautiful. Oh, it's thank beautiful. you. And, um, and I think it is. It, it is um, an encouragement for all of us to, to re-see things that might feel commonplace and to use them with a little more flair and warmth. And um, I, I can tell you that... I am very connected to nature, but I I love the way the two of you see it and put it out there as well. And it it allows me to re-see and re-engage as well. So thank you very much for being guests on the program. Oh, very cool. Thank you, Jennifer. Jennifer, thank you so much. Todd and Carter are gardeners, designers, creators, and educators whose creations capture their own love of place and of seasonal garden-based ritual, which they hope will awaken an ever greater and more sublime meaning for us when we bring the outdoors in or take ourselves out. Todd and Carter's work under the name of Hort and Pot strives to embrace the seasons of their home place in the Catskill Mountains. This vision is in many ways an effort to reimagine their own relationship to the wider natural world around them and an encouragement to us to do the same. Join us again next week when we celebrate and honor the coming winter solstice here in the Northern Hemisphere in conversation with Amber Tam, an undaunted gardener, farmer, floral designer, and very human justice seeker. Her work gives us visions for a future we can grow on. Listen in next week. Cultivating Place is a co-production of North State Public Radio and listeners supported through CultivatingPlace.com. You will not want to miss the pure joy of the images capturing Hort and Pot's magical, moving, creative work, perfect for the season, over at CultivatingPlace.com under the podcast tab. I very much like the idea of awakening the sublime of winter with lovingly wrought winter items from outside in. Our show producer and engineer is Matt Fiddler. Original theme music is by Ma Muse, accompanied by Joe Craven and Sam Bevan. Cultivating Place is distributed nationally by PRX, Public Radio Exchange. Until next week, enjoy the cultivation of your place. I'm Jennifer Jewell.